It's terrific to see so many of you here interested in IP and entrepreneurship. I'm Glennis Gold. I'm the interim director at the Tech Transfer Office. I've been the interim director for about eight, a uh, little less than eight months um, since Ala Khan retired, the founder of the Tech Transfer Office here. Uh, and before that, I was the assistant director for about uh, eight years. Uh, and I'm very excited to say that July 1st, Neela Bakuni of the Rice Tech Transfer Office is joining us as the director, um, and uh, terrific. Uh, she's got a, a long um, uh, history of uh, experience um, in tech transfer. She's also an engineer, and we're looking forward to her arrival. Uh, and with me to help join in the conversation after I give an overview of the policy and practice of IP at Dartmouth is Jill Mortali, the director of the Office of Sponsored Project. She's been here for about seven, eight years, right? And uh, so I'm glad to have her um, help uh, with the conversation and engage all of you. Uh, so um, today, I. I'm going to be giving an overview, and so I'm not getting too far into the weeds. I'm going to be looking at policies uh, at Dartmouth regarding the uh, patent policy and the copyright policy, and I'm focusing especially on research at Dartmouth as opposed to assigned tasks by staff. Um, the other point I wanted to make was I'm, again, focusing on Dartmouth College Policy. I just remembered I needed to say 
um, as Paula requested, that we do not have any financial interest specific to this, um, uh, to DHMC or Dartmouth, that we do not intend to discuss off-label or investigational uses of product or a device, and we attest that we are not receiving direct payments from commercial, a commercial entity with respect to this activity. And Jill affirms this too. Thanks. Okay, so now, uh, without further ado. Uh, so what I wanted to focus on was the fact that this is a talk about IP and entrepreneurship at Dartmouth College. Uh, if you are a clinician or a nurse and you come up with an invention and you're paid by the clinic, by DHMC or some other entity other than the trustees of Dartmouth College, and you do not have funds that um, were uh, used for the research from which the invention or other creative work arose, most of those research funds are going to come through Jill's office, the Office of Sponsored Projects at Dartmouth College. Then. Uh, my office, tech transfer, is not the one to go to with your technology and to find out what the policies are around IP. You need to go to the Office of Intellectual Property Management at um, the clinic at DHMC and speak with John Pfeiffer. I don't know if he's here today. No. So, um, so just as a, please understand that I'm speaking about Dartmouth <coughs> College policy and implementation today. Sometimes we have uh, joint works and we have agreements between uh, the hospital and the college where we have an inventor coming from the hospital of clinician, and perhaps, and a, um, a researcher at Dartmouth. So um, that is um, what I wanted to let you know about um, uh, specifically regarding the, where these policies come from. And you'll see that there are... Uh, internet links to the policies. Um, so I'm going to be speaking um, about the major types, types of intellectual property, just so you have uh, a little bit of comfort uh, when I'm talking about patent and copyright. Um, and then I'll speak specifically about IP policy at Dartmouth. And lastly, about the process by which you disclose, protect, re-commercialize, and um, uh, assist with entrepreneurship here at Dartmouth College. Um, if you have specific questions, um, please save them for uh, the end of the talk. I'm going to speak for about 20 minutes, and then we're going to um, have question and answer. And I'm really looking forward to that, to find out what you're interested in. Um, and I, I, how many of you here, just a show of hands, have, had, um, uh, have submitted an invention disclosure to our office? Okay, not so many, um, but it's, and so it's great to have others here and to learn more about it. But those of you who have and who have, filed, who have patents filed with our office, please, please um, uh, do uh, chime in and, and talk about the experience. And in this transition period, we're always happy to hear about um, ideas for moving forward in a different and, and perhaps better way. Um, okay, so in terms of major types of intellectual property, as I, I've talked a lot about patents already, <laughs> patents are um, governed um, in the United States by um, federal patent law, and uh, they're administered by the United States Patent and Trademark Office. 
and we think of them as something that uh, covers an invention. Um, and there um, could be a composition of matter, um, a, a process by which you create the composition of matter. So those are examples of, of patent, patentable matter. Um, and then a, another uh, kind of intellectual property are copyrights, which is a tangible expression of an original idea. And again, governed by, uh, in the United States by federal law and um, also um, administered by the United States Copyright Office. And now in medicine, we see a lot more um, copywritten uh, uh, intellectual property that um, can be translated to uh, uh, use for patient care, um, questionnaires, surveys, uh, algorithms. Sometimes you can't uh, uh, patent uh, an algorithm unless it has certain qualities about it. So, but, but the algorithm alone um, may be um, copywritten uh, as a tangible expression of a, an original idea. So um, uh, they, they play an important role, copyrights do, in, um, in the uh, whole schema of intellectual property for uh, the translation of medicine um, in, to the bench. Excuse me, to the bedside. Um, trademarks. <coughs> trademarks, examples of those. You've uh, probably heard that Coca-Cola, the way it's written um, and the word itself, is a trademark. The Nike swoosh, um, so many other items that um, we see every day, they are trademarked. And at Dartmouth, we're lucky to have in the general counsel's office someone um, who is a trademark specialist, Karen Mongen. So if, for example, if Dartmouth is filing a patent application on a particular invention, and I, what comes to mind right now is something called the ice mitt that one of our researchers at the um, Dartmouth Engineering School at Thayer has made. Um, we uh, filed on that, and we've also um, trademarked the name ice mitt. Um, she's an uh, Arctic researcher and in the Antarctic works, and she um, has figured out a way to um, keep ice frozen all over the world so she can share it with um, researchers um, and make sure that it stays uh, uh, authentic to the way it was when she took it out. And so that's the ice mitt, and Karen Mongen in the general counsel's office helped us trademark it. Um, and then trade secrets. We don't keep trade secrets at Dartmouth because we're a, um, a place where we want a paramount interest is to disseminate information. So we do not um, keep trade secrets. Sometimes we receive trade secrets. I don't like to receive trade secrets. When someone's doing research or making an evaluation whether to do research, a company might want to share a particular um, trade secret. And it's a, it's a big pain for us because we have to keep it under lock and key and uh, literally sometimes, and we don't want to do that. We'd rather have um, a secret that is time limited. We're not, as Jill says, we're not good at keeping secrets here at Dartmouth. Um, and that's why we prefer patents and copyrights. Okay, so um, that's just a, a, a short overview of the major types of IP. Um, and then in terms of IP policy at, at Dartmouth,
department, there are two specific policies that I direct you to, the patent policy, um, which is at the TTO website, and the copyright policy, which is at the OSP website. Um, and we're going to go over those briefly, as I mentioned. I'm not going to go into every uh, clause in each policy. I've picked out the ones that I think are going to be salient for today's discussion. Um, okay, so in terms of patent policy, um, uh, I do want to emphasize, uh, and this was written in 1978, and I think it's still true. There are other things that need some revision. We're working on a revision, but I think this is true. The objective of the college patent policy is to facilitate the invention, transfer, and application of new technology, which promises to be of benefit to the general public and at the same time to protect the interests of the inventor and the college. So um, we want to make sure that the invention, and I know of some, when I look at your faces, there's some of you who I know have really successfully transferred technology to the public and, um, and at the same time made sure that it was appropriately protected, either if it was Dartmouth, that Dartmouth's protecting it, or if it was your own companies. And that's a really important part. If we look at the Constitution of the United States, the founding uh, fathers saw that, uh, put um, patenting in um, the Constitution, saying that it was important um, for innovation and that it's a useful tool to be able to exclude others from the use of um, a particular uh, uh, technology, that it makes others then um, want to uh, go ahead and innovate um, and find something better, make something better. Uh, so, and, and again, as I said, it, this policy applies to um, the employees, faculty, um, administrators, and students at Dartmouth. Um, so um, I particularly wanted to um, just explain that in section three of the current policy, patent rights to inventions developed through indi individual initiative, and I think that's mostly, you know, for researchers that's uh, so true um, that it's, we want you to go ahead and innovate in a way that we aren't telling you exactly what to do not in response to a specific college assignment and with only incidental use of college <coughs> facilities. I don't have um, a specific definition for what incidental use is. Um, so it's probably a couple, I know that a couple emails on a Dartmouth-owned computer might be. Um, and I know that use of a wet lab in uh, Borwell is not incidental use. <laughs> and so. Um, in between is where it might get uh, more uh, nuanced. Uh, so, but where there's incidental use of college facilities, um, the invention belongs to the inventor and any royalty income accrues to the inventor alone. Um, what we like to see is that if an invention was created, it, we know it was created in the basement and the wet lab space that was used was used at a contract research organization. And then um, we can say it's not Dartmouth. Okay, so when is it Dartmouth? In a variety of situations, I direct you to the patent policy, but for your purposes today, I want you to remember that a patentable invention um, that's developed through a sponsored grant or contract, um, that this, for that situation, the term, the special provision contained in the grant or contract um, prevails. 
And so um, most of the grants and contracts, I'd say, uh, in my experience, all of them um, require that Dartmouth owns the inventions arising from research under that grant or contract. And this is true in particular as far as federal research goes. Dartmouth um, takes advantage of federal law that allows it to own inventions arising from federally funded research. And um, we can license it to companies, but in, uh, we have to get um, permission to assign it to, meaning give away ownership um, in total. We have to get a permission from the federal government. We've done it before, but um, it is required. And it takes some time. Sometimes we even are uh, giving, if we don't want it, we offer it to the inventor. Um, and they may file pending and, and claim ownership pending approval of the federal government. But um, we do own um, most of what or all of what arises unless the sponsor owns it. And there are times, for, for example, in a clinical trial situation where um, the sponsor owns what comes out of the uh, research and under a, a clinical trial. Okay, so that's the specific clause I wanted to share in terms of patent policy. Copyright policy is actually um, much uh, more uh, uh, liberal towards the um, uh, researcher. And they're um, uh, consistent with sister institutions, although it's changing more, where um, the uh, uh, copyright is including scholarship, literary works, computer software, artistic works, all of those items that may be copyrightable and are created by faculty or other employees are deemed to be the property of the creator. Unless, um, and again, for your purposes, there are other um, uh, uh, exceptions, but the two that are important are special circumstances, and that's where the college made an extraordinary investment. What's an extraordinary investment? Um, perhaps we paid for all the surveys to be administered to um, all of the patients at, uh, the, at Dartmouth Hitchcock or something like that. And that might be, depending on the cost of that, could be viewed as an extraordinary investment and therefore, Dartmouth has the right to assert claim to the copyright to that very important questionnaire for patients. Um, and another one is patentable works. Um, and so there, that would be where, um, if it's patentable also and copyrightable, it would be um, uh, Dartmouth's. So that's the copyright policy. In terms of uh, the um, practice, um, uh, putting, putting these things into practice. Uh, one important aspect is that if we're receiving revenue, um, either from a patent or a copyright, um, following recovery of expenses, so it could be legal expenses that it costs for Dartmouth to file a patent application and prosecute it, uh, could be the cost of registration of a copyright, um, there would be um, uh, revenues coming out of that, hopefully, after commercialization, and 50% are shared with the inventors. It's very generous. Uh, Stanford, Sloan Kettering, Dana-Farber have a much less um, 
a generous split. So, um, and this is in the patent policy, but applies to the copyright policy as well. Uh, and then in terms of implementation, um, if I uh, direct you to our website, um, to the invention disclosure there, it also, even though it says invention disclosure, it's also where you would, how you would disclose um, creative, a creative work, a copywritten matter. Um, you submit a disclosure to tech transfer. And then um, we, it, uh, it term, if there's any thought that it might be patentable, we would share it with outside patent counsel to determine that using the criteria here um, and get an opinion from, from them. The criteria there in terms of um, a non-obvious, novel, useful, those are um, the, under federal law the things that are required to be patentable matter. Um, and uh, I'll speak later about opportunities for you to learn a lot more about patentability and um, commercialization um, evaluations uh, shortly. So, um, but this is what our patent attorneys look at to determine um, uh, whether it's worth it for Dartmouth to file. Then Dartmouth makes a decision about whether to file on the particular um, patent application, or excuse me, on the particular technology to cover it with a patent application, or uh, and to then simultaneously start to exploit it, um, either via um, uh, trying to license it to a company unrelated to Dartmouth, or perhaps that we know that there's a, a faculty member who has started a company, and they've already told us they're interested in licensing it, and we move forward that way, and we seek reimbursement for license expenses and appropriate um, other kinds of fees or equity in the company um, that the faculty member has started. Uh, and then if it's, we're also looking at the commercialization and we, um, possibilities for that invention or copyrightable matter uh, and go forward in that way. And we're having a back and forth at that time, both with our patent attorneys and with our um, uh, <laughs> inventor, creator, to discuss you know, we're gathering information at that point. And as I said, we're in transition. We're looking at new ways to start to evaluate technologies, both on the patentable side and the commercialization side. Um, as you can imagine, uh, with patent attorneys, it becomes expensive quickly. And we're thinking about maybe starting to do some things in-house. We're looking forward to speaking with Neela Bakuni about ideas for moving this forward. And, further discussion as we see more and more of you guys um, submitting disclosures and having an interest in, in starting companies. So um, that's uh, the implementation. And then lastly, I just wanted to explain that our office does many, many things. And um, in terms, not just filing patent applications and prosecuting them, um, we handle uh, the IP provisions in um, all, whenever we get a question from the, uh, from OSP, we, um, we, in terms of intellectual property clauses, we look at them, we handle um, foundation agreements, examples of, you know, Robert Wood Johnson, we're looking at the IP terms there for OSP and consult. If they see anything that doesn't, that looks out of the norm, you have to go translate technology. <laughs> and so, um, 
and uh, similarly with, um, like, for another example, Susan um, uh, G. Komen breast cancer research. Um, uh, it's important that you know that we handle material transfer agreements, either materials coming from or going to um, either nonprofit institutions or for profits, and we have IP terms in there for whatever research is being done with the with the material, confidentiality agreements, they're very, they're critical, especially if you haven't filed a patent application on a particular technology. You want to make sure to have a confidentiality agreement in place if you're sharing it with uh, an entity outside of Dartmouth. Um, and then a variety of agreements, we handle the, um, the IP provisions in them. Uh, these are government-sponsored um, agreements to small businesses. And then we receive sub-agreements to work on um, further research under them, SBIRs, STTRs. New Hampshire has similar, uh, a similar um, uh, scheme called the NIH um, Innovation Research Center grants. Um, and of course, we handle license agreements and inter-institutional agreements, maybe where we have a co-assigned, co-owned invention with another institution. Um, and then I wanted to uh, come back to the fact that my office is part of the Office of Entrepreneurship and Technology Transfer, which has been in existence for about two years. Uh, Tillman Gerngross is the visionary who helped uh, create that uh, office. Over at there, he's uh, both a uh, serial entrepreneur and faculty inventor. Uh, and um, he is very much encouraging um, all of you, even if you're not ready to start a company, just to know more about the variety of ways <coughs> to innovate and translate technology um, to the public. Uh, and uh, Trip Davis is the executive director of the um, OETT. Um, we have two arms. There's the entrepreneurship arm, um, uh, and the tech transfer. I've spoken a lot about tech transfer. Entrepreneurship um, has both, has actually the DRTC, the Dartmouth Regional Technology Center, where um, we have some of the tenants there uh, of the DRTC here. We're lucky to have a representative from Seldera here and um, Mike Finger, who's going to speak a little bit later, uh, maybe with a question or two. <laughs> or, answer a question or two about entrepreneurship. And, um, and Immunex, had, uh, Dave DeLucia has had um, uh, uh, some um, work in the DRTC as well. And so um, that's a great place for new companies to start out. Um, and then the den at Fort Courier Place, if you haven't been there, I really recommend you go. It's in Hanover across from the Black Visual Arts Center. Um, it's both an innovation center and a new venture incubator. Jamie Coughlin is the director. There are amazing workshops there. I'm in a, the next slide shows them. They're really exciting um, ways to learn with your uh, fellow researchers about entrepreneurship. And on June uh, 16th, 17th, and 18th, um, Myself, Tammy Hickox, who I don't know if she's here. She's going to come later, maybe, who's a conflict of interest officer at Dartmouth. And um, uh, Jamie Coughlin are going to be holding our second faculty entrepreneur workshop. And it would be terrific if you could all come. 
um, or if you're interested. And you don't have to come to every one. You could just come to one of them, and there'll be more information about that. And I also recommend you um, put yourselves on the DEN uh, mailing list if you have any interest in learning more about entrepreneurship. Um, and uh, so uh, in terms of uh, the entrepreneurship, and there's also the DEN um, that is now just a new iteration of itself. It, you, know, you may recall it from when Greg Fairbrothers was running it, the Dartmouth um, Entrepreneurial Network. And that has just gotten larger and larger. Um, and so it's a huge network of Dartmouth-friendly folks, Dartmouth alumni who are running companies, who are lawyers and accountants, and are making themselves available in many cities around the country and elsewhere even to assist Dartmouth folks, in, in particularly students, but they're, I think if, you know, in terms of getting um, assistance on a particular matter, they'd be ready to help our faculty and researchers uh, as well. Um, and then uh, these are the variety of offerings that DEN provides, um, and uh, included in them are intellectual property office hours, um, venture office hours, as six to start boot camp, which is specifically about starting a company, attorney roundtables at their conference, annual conference, and a resource guide of Dartmouth-friendly attorneys. So a lot of great um, information and discussions to be had there. And that's really open to the whole Dartmouth Upper Valley community. So it's open to DHMC folks, too. It, 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 you don't have to be paid by Dartmouth or getting research dollars from Dartmouth. Um, <laughs> So thank you so much, and now I'd like to have a conversation and um, you know, just let folks know that uh, re really any question is a, a good question. So, uh, and I know Dave was uh, going, <laughs> Dave Delucia is here, um, who I uh, guess gave us a tour of his uh, lab space uh, for Immunex. And um, Dave, what's been your experience here at Dartmouth? We commercialized some events by renting a well made in this building and working with Glenn's office, licensed them out. Working with Mark Israel, we got space in this building. Working with Kathy Smith, we got to use the IML as a shared resource. And then we improved the technology and licensed it to Johnson & Johnson. It's going to be, it is their lead renal oncology product right now, later this year. We've also given back to transfer office about $1.3 million in, in license fees so far, and about $2.5 million in sponsored research back into labs in this building. Through Jill's office? Through Jill's office. So um, the whole system has worked very, very well. So, any questions? Mike, do you want to have, have anything to add to Dave's? Sure. Um, sure, and I have a microphone here if you'd like. <laughs> okay. I think, do I turn this on somehow or is it? Hello? Oh, there you go. So the, the way I've looked at entrepreneurial activities is very recent. Um, when I started doing research that related to things that I thought were really useful in terms of maybe helping people uh, developing drugs or diagnostics. It wasn't called entrepreneurial. I thought of it just as doing research that 
And there were some really interesting things I could do with that research. And to a large extent, that started here. I mean, I got initial as, as a postdoctoral. Um, I started getting into immunology, which at the time, when I look back on what we knew in, in the 70s, this early 80s, was just, I can't believe we didn't know all of the stuff, or even some of the stuff that we know now. It was, what's a B cell do? I mean, what's that in there for? So I started out that way, and I think I've continued to do that with the, um, the goal of identifying uh, projects that could help people. And uh, I don't, I do some of those myself and have done some of those myself. Some have been very successful, but I still do that. Um, and one of the ways I, I'm doing that now is as a result of starting a company, which basically has as its focus finding projects that are potentially useful in curing diseases um, uh, and or creating diagnostics. And so we actually search, not just Dartmouth, but all over this country, and we're starting to do that in Europe, projects that do that. And I think all of you, getting back to where I'm at with this, is that all of you are doing research. Some of it uh, is very useful in terms of understanding mechanisms of action because that then leads to learning uh, more about the possibility of how, they would, how you would use the information you've got. And many of you are probably in doing work that could easily be fit into the category of translational. Uh, there may be something that you've got that may be interesting, that may, with the proper work uh, and focus, uh, get to a point where yeah, this really looks promising. Maybe we can get some funds to do some kind of research that would permit us to develop a drug or a diagnostic. And as an individual who has been part of several companies, um, and one that uh, one now, uh, Seldera, um, I still talk with people who are doing research and I listen to if they want, uh, and they will tell me what they're doing, and I will tell them what I think about that as it relates to translational research and the potential for developing a drug or a diagnostic. Um, and I do that without trying to get them to, to work with us. I mean, th the key event, uh, obviously, is when you've got something that looks promising, what do you do with it? And one of the things you can do with it is start a company um, that's not easy. Um, it requires a lot of time and effort, but people do that and have been successful at doing it. Uh, the other thing you can do is find somebody to help you. And there are various ways of doing that. And I think a critical piece in developing something is get money that you can use to pursue an idea or a potential um, project that could result in information that says this is really interesting and maybe it will help people. And there is a mechanism for doing that, and that's to write an SBIR, a Small Business Innovation Grant. Um, there's money, and it's not insignificant, and it's funded at a higher rate than most grants that you would, would go. I mean, it's in the 20 percentile versus the 10 percentile. 
And if you're really good at writing it, you can get money for it. And the money's not trivial to begin with. It's trivial. It's uh, $2,500, um, 2500 um, And if you're really fortunate, um, you can get past that and get a million and a half dollars for the second phase of it. And some of that can get you to a point where you found out it's going to work or it's not going to work. And if it's going to work, then there's real potential for moving that to clinical trial. And, and in a sense, where I was going with all of that is I stand ready to talk with anybody about this, and I have in a number of situations. One classical uh, interaction I had was with a friend I hadn't seen for a while, and I asked him what he was doing, and he told me some of the research, and I listened to this. This was actually at the dump at the time. <laughs> we were both at the dump. so um, And after we deposited all of our stuff, we had this nice conversation, which I said to him, you know, that's really interesting, and maybe that's worth pursuing. And I said to him, what you need to do, as soon as you get home, this was on a Saturday, as soon as you can, go to technology transfer office and tell them about it and see what they think and see if you can develop intellectual property associated with it. And he says, oh, that's a good idea. I can't do that right away because I'm going to Paris. And I said, geez, well, that's great. I love Paris. So have a great time. So I came back and I told Jake, who's one of the people I work with, um, what, was, what he was doing. And we all thought it was really interesting. So when he came back, Jake called him up and said, can we help you in any way? Um, and he told him, uh, this fellow told him what, what kind of studies he was doing and what he thought was interesting about it. And um, Jake said, well, that's great. Have you... Uh, uh, gone to the technology transfer office. And he says, no, I haven't yet. And he says, well, you should go. Go, go as soon as possible and, and get uh, intellectual property for it. And, and then Jake said, and you haven't told anyone about this, right? And he said, no, I, I haven't. Um, well, um, yeah, I did. <laughs> I went to Paris, and I gave a presentation on this. <laughs> so, so it's that kind of thing. Um, it's a neat story, but and true, but you need you need to use this office. <laughs> we should all meet at the dump. I'd be happy to. to at, at any rate, um, that, that's my diatribe. Sorry. Um, if you have any questions to ask about that, I'd be happy to answer them or if I can. Sorry. Uh, do you all know why that was bad? Uh, it, it, it's bad because. Nobody's going to do anything with it. If you don't have intellectual property, there's no value in putting money into it in order to pursue it because if it's open to the public, then many big companies, and all of them, in fact, can do it themselves once they find out about it. You have yeah. And by disclosing it even once in Paris to five people, if it was a public forum, um, you've lost your um, patent rights outside the United States, or you've lost Dartmouth's patent rights outside the United States, and you have a one-year grace period uh, to file in the United States. However, and, and Mike and Dave can speak to this more than I, a lot of times your, the value, the commercial value of the technology is um, profoundly um, uh, compromised by not being able to file outside the United States. But if they had gone to you first, 
then it would have been fine. That's right. And we can do what's called a cover sheet provisional, which is much less expensive than a full-blown application. Um, if we're set, we're, I'm going to Paris um, tomorrow. You know, again, I don't promise. I see if I can work it out. But we prefer um, that you file or, excuse me, submit invention disclosures to tech transfer early and often. Um, and please complete them. Tell us what your funding is. We ask that. Tell us any publication dates before or after you've submitted to us. And that's the best way um, for us to know that there's a bar date that we're looking at um, and then that possibly your patent rights will be risks if we don't file. And Dartmouth's <coughs> patent rights, so we consider that. Um, the other thing is really um, you can't, we can't file you can, um, at least if you're just having a conversation with someone, perhaps an interested business, we can complete a confidential disclosure agreement and you can have the conversation under that. You don't, you know, it's very um, culturally weird to have 100 people signing a CDA and they probably won't if you're giving, a, you know, a forum and have a, you know, a, a confidentiality agreement at the door. So better to just file and that's how you're protected. Questions? Anybody thinking about starting a company? And, no, wow, you're all busy doing science, right? <laughs> I have a question. Um, you told us who uh, owns rights and how to go about uh, pursuing rights um, when things are funded by the government or funded by contracts from industry. But what about research that's funded by philanthropy? Foundations. No, for I'm example, thinking anonymous uh, of philanthropy. Like, you know, you have little collection bins next to the checkout counter at CVS, and the nickels added up, and you use that to do your research. So, is the money, Jill, maybe you can speak to this. Has that happened in your office where, um, at all, that in terms of. Has, has that I mean, question the come up? For this is we generate millions of dollars a year in philanthropy that we pour into research here. So I, I don't think the funding is is the first criteria. It starts with the employment, right? So right, and if right. you're doing if so, if the funds are coming to Dartmouth, and you're employed by Dartmouth, and you're doing research at Dartmouth, and then you you invent something then it's owned by Dartmouth. Yeah, so if the research is being done at Dartmouth, regardless of where the funding is, is coming. So um, the philanthropy um, uh, aspect um, is, is important in terms of what the terms are under which um, we have to uh, give an option to a particular entity to, the, to license the technology. But in this case, it, we, uh, it depends on if it's just when I give money, as you're describing, I'm not asking for any conditions on that money. And so I don't expect to hear that anything was made from that money or anything. So, so I think it's, um, but if it was made at Dartmouth, as Jill pointed out, then um, Dartmouth has the right to assert title to it. Do you have a follow-up question, or is that helpful? Oh, I'm sorry. Okay. Yes. What is um, when you guys do a release of rights? That essentially tells the inventors that the invention is there; it's no longer Dartmouth's. That is correct. Okay. 
Except, and then I explained further that in certain situations, we can't give a um, complete release of rights because um, when it's federal um, funds, we say we're releasing the rights pending government approval and subject to the terms of the grant under which we received the, um, the money. And, and that always, and under federal um, grants, requires that either Dartmouth, if we own it, or you, if you owned it, have to give back to the federal government uh, what's called the confirmatory license. It doesn't, uh, you have to explain this to um, private investors and to um, private companies that it doesn't um, compromise your ability, th their ability to have an exclusive license, but the government wants their right to have, uh, to practice the uh, technology within the government. So I noticed throughout your presentation, you didn't mention utility patents. We almost, I think I've, in my nine years, we've only filed utility patents. So we file what's, typically we file a provisional patent application, a placeholder application initially. That gives us a year to um, accumulate data and new information to put into the regular utility application, which has to be filed one year from the date of the provisional filing. And that regular application, the regular utility application, the use application, can be um, in the form of a, what's called a patent cooperation treaty um, application, a PCT application, which give us, gives us an additional 18 months to decide which countries we want to file in. Or for different reasons, you might file immediately in countries at that one-year period in the U.S. and other countries. Um, and that's where the expense starts um, becoming much higher. Both first at the PCT level, there's an, an additional expense. But then in the national phase is where you have the um, largest expense. So there seems to be in, in the community um, uh, this sort of like thought that utility patents, which is sort of like, you know, there's a drug that is destined to use A, but you are hypothesizing and you show evidence that you can use the same drug for use B and you want to get a patent on Right. There seems to be a thought in the community that, that the use patents for that kind of aspect are a little bit, you know, helpless. Um, a new use? No, you can... I'm sorry, could you... Well, I interrupted you. So, oh, no, that's okay. So people think that, you know, use patents are not very useful <coughs> in the future. So what are your comments on that, given well, that most of what you filed is you know, use patents. Right. So um, just to be clear, there are different kinds. There's a design patent um, and a utility patent. And then there are patents on plant um, plants. And, then, and those are basically the three different kinds of patents. And we file almost only, I think, only utility patents. Um, we file um, and successfully get issued new use patents um, with what you're describing. Um, and sometimes uh, they're going to be method patents, um, but we don't, as a category, say um, they're not going to work. We're not filing on them. Okay. Even if drugs, the drugs that I'm mentioning are generic now? Um, again, I'm not a, I'm not a patent attorney, um, but I um, know that it, we don't dismiss them out of hand. So, um, so there's, you know, file them. There's... Uh, we're looking at both federal laws promulgated in statute and case law. And um, I don't know if you know about the Supreme Court recently um, ruled on 
uh, a series of cases called the Myriad and Mayo cases about genes and when you can what's patentable as far as genes are concerned. And um, there's more and more law coming out, you know, on a, a periodically on this over the next year, and um, and that goes true for um, software cases as well under another case called Alice. So. There's, it's just a fluid um, question and answer. Yes? Because when you release rights to the inventor and indicate that Dartmouth isn't interested, is there any obligation going forward as that work is embellished and expanded and changed if it's done outside of Dartmouth, those things? That's an excellent question. Thank you. <laughs> um, yeah, so... Um, we, under that release of rights document, it's called an assignment document, we say that um, the inventors who are signing it um, have a requirement to disclose improvements to that particular technology to my office, to tech transfer. So those improvements, though, if they're made at their company with their company's funds, no, they don't have a requirement to, to show. But if they're made at Dartmouth under the... Um, uh, auspices of there being a, a Dartmouth um, uh, faculty member researcher, then yes. We have, in fact, done something like that with one of the projects a person here developed that we thought was really interesting, and Technology Transfer Office decided they couldn't get a patent on it, so we went and got one ourselves, and they gave it to us. So we did it ourselves, and have they tried to help that individual develop that research. Could be useful, <laughs> may not work, but can't be done. Yes, Yelena. Well, when, when you have an, an invention disclosure and then you're going to decide whether to file or not, and then we go ahead with the filing, how do you decide whether it's best for the investigative department to license it or to get sponsored research for that um, IP? When you so I, I it seems like maybe there are two questions you're asking because um, in, as soon as we get a file we decide to file we're thinking about how are we going to commercialize this technology right and we're thinking about whether we're going to be licensing it to an entity or we're thinking about um, if you if you tell us I really want to file uh, start a company around this and you, you show us a business plan then that's what we're thinking about. So that's the, the existing technology. As far as sponsored research is, go, is concerned, that's fine to continue to look for sponsored research to um, uh, enhance that technology. Likelihood is that the sponsor is going to want a piece of that original technology, and so they're probably going to either say that they have an option to a license for it as part of the deal with the... Um, with providing you with sponsored research, or they're going to license it and at the same time give you money for sponsored research as you, um, it's you in order for you to improve the technology, but for them to have access to it. Um, so, so those are the, uh, there's both the research aspect of the technology and then the pat, the rights that exist in, in, in them itself. So, I hope that helps. Yes. Uh, so, oh, and then you, what, uh, Alexei Kiselov, so I have experience for filing uh, IP with Dartmouth. And when you guys first sent to the outside lawyer, 
and I read her comments, I say, oh boy, is she working for Dartmouth or for the United States patent examiner? <laughs> so, it's supposed to be that the lawyer we hire should look for what is patentable and not to find an excuse to not patent. In other words, did we change a lawyer in the meantime? <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> Excellent, right. That's a good, good question. Um, so, uh, our uh, current lawyer for biosciences is um, very thorough in her review. And that's my response in terms of this sense. She is trying to preview what the United States Patent and Trademark Office examiner will likely do. And, um, and I'm happy to have further dialogue with you about this. Uh, she, I, the person I think you're thinking about remains our lawyer. There are other lawyers, and we're happy, again, Lakata. what? Lakata, right? That's her name. <laughs> no comment. But, uh, yeah, she, Jane Lakata is our lawyer. One of our lawyers. We have uh, several, and I'll say that when, if you're starting a company and you're interested in having a specific lawyer who knows your area very well, you know, if you're working on protein engineering or something very specific, we don't prohibit you from having that attorney be the lawyer prosecuting the patents. Yes, Mark. One of the big challenges, I think, for any university, but it's huge here, is that once um, technology is patented, um, marketing that technology becomes complicated, and especially for inventors who might not know that space very well mm -hmm. in the industry. And <coughs> I'm wondering, um, how do you guys in the tech transfer office think about that problem? And have you ever considered actually um, hiring a service that would have specialties in various areas. So if it was immunology that you thought you were discovering, that they would know the immunology space. Or if you had discovered some uh, novel methodology for synthesizing DNA, they would know that space. We're thinking about it a lot more now. And in the past, we didn't have the resources uh, to um, to do the kind of um, hiring of services and more in-depth uh, marketing evaluation as you're describing. And we still don't have the resources on hand, but we are campa campaigning for them. And I think um, with Neela Bakuni coming aboard, we're going to continue to work on that and have an overall plan. And I actually right now I've been meeting with um, folk, with Jamie Coughlin of the entrepreneurial end of OETT and also our operations officer to discuss both the invention disclosure process and how to streamline that and the invention evaluation process, including commercialization. And early on learning um, who were the companies. And we have a couple of services we've had trials for. There's um, one called Invention Evaluator, another called IP.com. And frankly, the way that inventions get marketed most often, and this is true throughout the US at universities. I, I'm a member of the Association of University Technology Managers, and there have been longitudinal studies on this, that it's through papers by the inventors, presentations, 
um, and uh, word of mouth on the inventors, and more and more from the inventors, and more and more um, GSK, Sanofi, are they're looking towards the outside to find technologies. And, um, and I think, Yoli, didn't, who came uh, uh, and that you organized the meetings with? Novartis. Novartis, right. Um, so, you know, they're really interested in putting money and time into learning what's going on at universities. And it's those kind of contacts and maintaining them over time. We don't have individual technology licensing officers. Um, uh, when Ala was on board, she and I were handling all of the administration um, apart from the financials um, and compliance matters. So it was a lot to also take doing in-depth evaluation, but we'd really like to see that. And through a, a we're looking at services. Could I comment on that? That's one of the most important things around. Absolutely, yeah. Um, in, in terms of almost all universities have this problem. Uh, Stanford doesn't know. Um, and others, other big uh, uh, universities do not, because they have a, a large group of individuals who pursue this. We actually work with some of those people. Uh, and help them do something with the projects that the people say at, at Stanford or someplace else too. But 70, more than 70 percent of the, uh, of the uh, intellectual property that's developed comes out of academia. And a very small percentage of that is ever used. And part of it is nobody knows about it. And basically universities send out one pages, here's something, read this and to all the big companies. And you know what they do with those? File them. They need somebody to actually go to them and talk to them about, here's what's happening at this university. Here are the projects. Here are the people that are doing it. They're outstanding people, and, and they've done this. And the, the data behind it are really impressive. Do you want to do something with that? And some of them will say no, but some will get interested in having you come and talk to them. So that's the kind of thing that I think is necessary, and it's lacking here, not because of you, but there's how many of the of you are there? Right. There's just right now. There's just me. <laughs> so basically, you can tell us what we should be doing, but we need the people here need help. Yeah. You know, I've been thinking about this a lot recently. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I spent most of my career at UCSF, and we didn't have, and we were. I don't know, five to ten size, the size of Dartmouth. But we still didn't have critical mass to be able to have enough tech transfer people that really knew all of the different areas that people worked in in order to market, even though we did have marketers. And so um, I think, to Mike's point, that this is a ubiquitous problem. Um, I would encourage you to think about either forming a consortium with other universities mm -hmm. or thinking about becoming a partner with a major university, I mean MIT, or somebody close by that has, you know, truly a marketing effort because I, I couldn't agree more with Mike that the idea of waiting to be discovered is not very efficient. It may very well be, as you said, the most common way, but it's not. It's no way to do business. I mean, the other thing is to note is that most of university um, technologies are early stage, and Stanford's done a, a, a study over, I think, 10 years that um, 
I, it was something like one in 7,400 technologies make over a lifetime multi-millions of dollars that they're really, um, to the extent uh, that these are licenses that are uh, technologies that are making money and making a difference, it, it, it's very few and far between. Give, and you know, there are different reasons for that, but, um, but we file with the hope that, and this is true with other universities in the states, with the hope that um, one of these needs protecting because of the chance that it's going to change someone's life or a group of lives. So let me just pursue that one, one bit further. One of the things that we do is at Seldera is we look at projects throughout the United States. We go into a number of states and, and look at their technology transfer office and the projects that have intellectual property associated with them. And we score them. We basically have done over 500 right now from here, mostly not from here, but from all over the states. And define, uh, we actually validate them. Is this good stuff? We look at the investigator, we look at all the science associated with it, we look at the, all the data, and then we look at what its potential is. And then we make a decision about it. And we have this group, and we try to get big companies to look at it. And we have one big company that does it. So we send them these projects, and they look at it, and they say, we're interested or we're not. And the point is, we're trying to expand that so that we can basically have a large number of big companies that are willing to look at us because they know us, and they've seen the other things we've done. And therefore, we can at least get an audience for the investigator. And the critical piece of all of the things that we do is it's the investigator that's critical. So the invest if we do a project with someone, that person who's actually developed it is the scientific founder of it. And that scientific founder is well rewarded if it works out. If it doesn't, which most projects don't. Right. Um, it's just the science that comes out, which is good too. So thanks so much, Mike. It's one o'clock or after, in fact. I appreciate all of you and um, coming. And if you have further questions, please don't hesitate to contact me or um, folks at the uh, den. And remember, June 8th is the um, panel of entrepreneurs here. Is it here? 658 West Borwell, 4 o'clock. If there's enough enthusiasm, uh, Jake and company will probably do another one later on the other campus. Great. And then um, the fa next faculty entrepreneur workshop is June 16th to 18th at Four Courier Place, The Den. Thank you. Thank you.